Jason Wallsmith is our guest today on our Monday Zoom call. I've had a good time going through newspapers.com and digging out some old stories about you, Jason. College bands no one's ever heard of or something like that by Playboy magazine and yep. in 2001. And it's just been fun going, going through a lot of these stories about you through the years. You've been at it a while, huh? Yeah, this is our, well, last year was our 30th anniversary. So I guess we're now into our 31st, but people don't make a big deal about 31st anniversaries, only 30th anniversaries. But yeah, it's been a long, a long time. It's been a great career and we're still going. So I'm a lifer. You're a lifer. All right. Well, let's talk about you. And by the way, this is um, a lot of folks are going to be joining the call as we, as we go along. Some of them I'm sure are longtime fans of yours. We'll open it up to comments and questions from them after, after a bit. Um, but I'm, I've been having so much fun getting to know you through your music. As, as I told you on the phone, I listened to most of your music coming down uh, through Tennessee and Missouri and Georgia. And I, I, you, you really do have a, a gift, Jason. And I, I thank you for sharing it with the world. Let's hear about, you and how you started and it can't be easy being a musician there sure, surely were much more lucrative ways to <laughs> living i'm sure your parents tried to steer you towards <laughs> well uh thankfully my parents really encouraged me to do whatever i wanted to do and i've i quite often daydream about the fact that there might have been easier ways to make a living and there's probably things i could have made a lot more money with but that being said even with all of the trials and tribulations um, and being satisfied with a, a, a meager income, it's been an awesome career. So I, I really can't complain. Um, those things that I think you think of as, as hardships as a musician or as an artist um, are just fuel for my fire. And, and uh, I really can't complain about those either. So I, I've been very lucky and, and had a great career and, and I'm still enjoying it. So, um, so yeah, my parents encouraged me and they still do. Oh, that's great. That's great. In fact, for example, my mom emailed the, uh, off the website, uh, the Nadas at the Nadas.com last night inquiring about a t-shirt that she had missed. And she just anonymously emailed, you know, a general email address, which I then got, which I called her this morning and said, you know, you can just, I'm the one that gets these emails. You can just call me and ask me if you want a t-shirt. <laughs> How do you get a t-shirt? What does the t-shirt say? Uh, well, the, the one that she that she missed never existed. So she she said, I missed the 30th anniversary t-shirt. And I said, we didn't make one. <laughs> so you didn't miss anything. <laughs> okay. Well, so for those on the call who might not know, um, tell us about you as a solo musician and you as a member of the Nadas. And how does that work? Uh, you know, it's a delicate balance. Um, the Nada's being a 30-year-old band. And, you know, back in the day, we used to play 250 shows a year, and we played in every state. And, and uh, over the years, that's kind of ebbed and flowed. And right now, it's definitely in an ebb state. Um, the Nada's is a, a duo partnership with a guy named Mike Butterworth, who I started the band with and who I write songs with. And, and we own the business of the Nada's. And so we kind of both just uh, find that balance between what we both want, which is not easy as anybody who has a, a partner in business or in life knows. Um, but it works okay because when it, uh, when it ebbs or when he wants to not play as much or concentrate on other things, then I have the solo work as an outlet. And so for the past few years, I've been spending more time on my solo work and released a couple of records and um and then whenever he gets interested we work together so we released a record last year as the nada's called come along for the ride we did a whole tour which in this case was about 30 dates instead of 250 and then i fill in around it with with solo work right one of the comments you made on uh, the recording i listened to was that you had released a new cd and it had received immediately thousands of downloads. 
and you said to your audience, guess how much we made on that release? And I was shocked when you said 22 cents. <laughs> so that, I, that makes me sound like a complainer. I, I, I must have just been, you know, you never know what you're going to say when you're playing a show and and you can't go back and unsay things. But I, I, I probably wouldn't normally just talk about uh, how much we make or how many. But anyway, yeah, I, I think I was just joking about how live streaming works. So th that was um, that wasn't downloads. That was listeners or streams of an album. And uh, it's yeah, it's basically 22 cents per 1000 listens to a song. Well, I thought it was important to know, actually, because I I would imagine that most people do not understand what technology has done to your industry and to musicians in general. Um, Des Moines schools are cutting back on music teachers. All of these things are conspiring into a, I wouldn't say perfect storm, but a disastrous storm. It seems to me for for local musicians and how they how they can make money. I guess on the one hand, but on the other hand, with technology, you can. You can communicate rapidly to to uh, thousands of people without postage. So it really is a double-edged sword. Yeah, and and I've I go way back to the very you know thirty years ago. It was really it was almost unheard of for an independent artist to release a CD. And that the barrier to entry to that for an artist was uh, there were very few people doing that in the early nineties. Um, but we figured out a way and my parents owned a printing company. So it made sense for us to print our posters. We could kind of do all the things a label would do. And so all I had to do was find a place to record, which was Fort Dodge, the first records, and then, um, and then find a place to duplicate it. So we just, we just figured it out. We kind of made our own, our own business. And, and you talk about mailing lists back in those days, we had a, a paper mailing list and we sent out a paper mailer. We called it, the uh, the nada's blah blah um and we just uh it was a tr a trifold uh what well, was a a double fold and then trifold in the letter size and because i worked for uh, the college paper and the ames tribune and i had all these friends who were journalists i had writers write stories and we put in photographs and we just made a little mini newspaper and we sent it out once a month and at one point we got up to i think we ended up with 16,000 people on our mailing list wow. and we and we sent that out monthly and I think by the last time we sent that out it was like a few thousand dollars to send it out you know but luckily back then the back page of the thing was an order form for CDs or t-shirts and somebody could mail in a check and we would mail them a CD and it kind of helped pay for it and then I remember when I graduated from college and we kind of went out for real and tried to take it more seriously and called it a job. Um, there was a day when it was like, Oh, you mean you can put more than one email address in an email? And that was the day we stopped, you know, printing and mailing a paper newsletter. And we went to this weekly, this weekly email, which we did for years and years and years. Now we still call it the weekly email, but we do it like every month or two or whenever we have something to talk about. So. Great, great. Um, what, describe your music. How do you go about creating songs? Uh, well, I think it's sort of part of who I am as a person, which is that I am curious and adventurous, and I like to hear other people's stories, and I just pay attention to what goes on around me, and I take notes from time to time of something that captured my attention. So um, I just always have this, this list of seeds, I call it, on my phone, which I'm about to pull up and show you just to prove, prove my point. Um, <laughs> song ideas. And I just, all these are sort of like a lyric or a line or a title. A lot of them are just title titles that then, and that's it, that's the end of it. So that means I've used everything from before and whenever I think, I feel like writing a song, I just look at this. And uh, and if it sticks with me, actually, I'd, I noticed some of them, like this one right here, Smashing the Squires, that became a song on the record. And that's all it started with was that little Smashing the Squires 
note, which uh, which is now a song on the Nada's Come Along for the Ride record. Some so of these are some of these are garbage, by the way. Some of these will never <laughs> become songs. Some of them I'll try really hard to make a song, and they won't turn out. And then sometimes I just sit down and I don't even refer to the list and something's just there. And that's when I really know that I need to work on it, you know? How do you know what an audience is looking for? How do you, do you have a sense before you sit down? Do you, do you write for an audience first or do you write for yourself first? That's a great question. I remember the, the uh, moment when I was writing for the record Transceiver, which came out in the early 2000s. I remember the moment when we decided to not write for the audience anymore. And it was like an epiphany and an incredibly freeing um, moment that just, because what we've, what we've realized was actually, sorry, we wrote the record Transceiver and that one we wrote for an audience. We were trying to write a hit. We hired these uh, producers who had a hit called Breakfast at Tiffany's, which was a, you know, you'll still hear it today. Um, their, their names are Todd and Toby Pipes and their band was called Deep Blue Something and they had this hit. And so we said, well, let's go make a record with them. Let's try to write a hit. Let's try to something, write something radio will pick up and see if it changes our life. And we made a whole record and we loved working with those guys and we wrote a, a lot of songs that we're very proud of um, and nothing happened and nobody played it and no one cared. And so after writing that record, we were sitting writing the next record and we decided we were writing this song called Listen Through the Static, which was sort of about the idea that, you know, radio being a gatekeeper didn't really matter to us anymore. And it was this epiphany where we were like, well, well let's just do what we want to do. Let's just have fun. And that realization was that people, there's all, there's an audience for everything, you know? So our audience is going to stick with us or they're not. And it almost doesn't really matter what we do. They're, they're, they're listening to us. They'll like it. If they like it, they'll stick around. If they don't, they'll move on, but there's probably someone else who will like it, you know? And so I don't know. I just, that was a big change for us. Made it halfway through my career, probably before, you know, close a long ways into my career before I had that epiphany. And it's been very freeing. Jason, I have to look at people who are quote unquote successful and my God, pink is flying through the stadium on some kind of wires and all of the crazy sort of money that goes into major productions. And, and yet the music itself oftentimes gets lost. It's the drama, it's the fireworks or whatever that gets, that gets the attention. How do you, how do you, how do you explain that? How do you, Oh. Well, luckily, I don't have to explain it because I do what I do. It kind of goes back to what you said before. And 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 I, I know how to sort of like when performing, you know, we know that things difference, you know, a stage makes a difference. Lights make a difference. Good sound makes a difference. But for us and for me, it's the song is always first. And so um, that that sort of simplifies that process. And, you know we'll never be doing what pink does. We won't reach the same people the same way, but there are people who do want to concentrate on the lyrics and the stories behind the songs and the melody. And, and they want to uh, go on that journey with us. And so we just do what we do and what we like. So I noticed there are at least two songwriter musicians on the call. I want to ask you two to be thinking about questions or comments uh, to, and I'm going to call on you in a little bit, but Back to back to my next question for you, Jason. It seems like most lyrics are around heartbreak, love, you know, the kind of the <laughs> kind of universal human emotion. Is is tell me why that is? Uh, well, a couple things. I think I I went to a songwriting workshop a long time ago, and and the person said, "What comes from the heart goes to the heart." And, and then also write what you know. And so there are these universal things that we all experience one way or the other, heart, you know, love or heartbreak. Um, and so those are probably the lowest hanging fruit, uh, you know, so it makes it easy thing, an easy thing to write about. Um, you know, at, at the same time, you can only write 
so many love songs or road songs. And so at this point with 14 records with the Nadas and, and one um, studio record solo, you do start to wonder if you're going to run out of things to talk about, but luckily so far we haven't. So my songs are either love songs or songs about the road or songs about loving the road. (laughs) That's what it seems like there or heartbreak on the road. So I don't know. (laughs) I I do. I do hope that I can find um, that I have found and, and, and tell some other stories from time to time and, 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 you know, reveal things to people that they didn't, hadn't thought about before, or, you know, I have those aspirations, but for the most part, it's so satisfying to, um, to express myself in this way that I am now like, I feel confident in the fact that if I'm feeling good about singing about something, um, that someone else will, will feel it too, you know? And, and even things like I put a, a song on my solo record called boy in the bubble, which was definitely a COVID song that I know, I know won't live forever because at a certain, and really didn't probably live that long at a certain point, people really got tired of hearing those stories, but it was important to me to, to get it out, you know, and part of my process. And I don't, you know, a lot of times you hear about people writing like, a hundred songs and then picking the best 10 for their record. I'm not one of those writers. I pretty much release anything I write because uh, I, they're all just sort of a gift from nowhere that I, that I don't want to deny, you know? So I have very few songs that I've written that I haven't, that I don't continue to perform or, or record. That boy in the bubble song was a, it was a reminder of you, what you went through when you were little, right? Four or five years old and mm-hmm. you had some kind of illness that caused yeah. you to, hospitalized for for many yeah. many weeks what was that and and how how did you how did you heal from that oh it turned out it was a congenital heart defect and i had the the part of my heart repaired so i had open heart surgery when i was four but prior to them figuring that out i was just a boy in a bubble so i was i had regular like bronchitis or respiratory things where the the only way to get me over it was to put me in the hospital and put me in a oxygen tent and and close me off from the world, <clears throat> the dangers of the world around me. So it, it really like, I hadn't really thought about it for a long time until I was trapped in a house, you know, protected from the germs floating through the air, like we all were. And it just sort of reminded me of some of those like moments when I was really too young to even really remember. So like I wrote the song about my memories of, of being four, but my memories of being four, I like to say when I'm playing the song that, that uh, my memories were formed from what I've heard from other people and John Travolta in a movie in like the eighties, you know? So like, there's a line in the song about, um, I, I say that uh, something about my parents reaching through the tent with, I say, I say kid gloves um, just for that sort of like uh, metaphor. But, but really I, in my mind, they were like rubber gloves, you know, they like reached in and, and my mom said, no, it was never like that. We just unzipped the tent and we held you if we wanted to hold you, you know? <laughs> so I have this like memory of, of being, um, of, of getting uh, uh, affection through these like, you know, inanimate hands coming through the tent. But it, my mom says it never happened. I don't know who to believe. I'm just going to go with John Travolta. How did that shape you, that experience, do you think? I don't know. Um I'm not, uh, I have, how did it shape me? I'm not sure. I haven't really thought about that much other than I really don't like going to the doctor. Yeah. So, so I avoid things I probably should like face head on, but also I'm fairly healthy for, a, for a guy who sits in a van seat for hundreds of thousands of miles. So you're still on the road quite a bit, correct? Yeah. I just did the drive that you did. I think I just drove down to Florida for five shows and, and uh, and back, I did it in a week. I put a hundred, a hundred and six thousand miles on our camper van in the first year and a half we owned it. Wow! And then, and then things kind of changed a little bit, and we did the band record, and I I spent more time playing shows with the band. There's only so many days in a year, and so I I put forty thousand miles on it in the past year and a half, a, a different van. So, um. 
So yeah. Well, let's take this most re recent road trip the, that you that you did. What, how did that come about? Where did you play? Were you were you in a bar or house mm -hmm. concert or how did how do those things come up about? And how can people on this call or listening to the podcast get in touch with what you do and how you and invite you to come to their town? Mm -hmm. Well, fortunately, I I have um, just from being in a band so long. Even though we kind of have stayed in the same place, our fans have moved everywhere. So anywhere we go. Um, anywhere I go, there are fans that, that want to come see a show. And in many cases, there are fans that want to host a show because at this uh, stage that we've all gotten to in life, various stages, I guess, um, sometimes people don't necessarily want to go to a bar anymore. And it's much easier to just invite a group of friends to come to their living room or their backyard and, um, and host a show. And so I do a lot more of that. And part of that was a a little bit of a COVID pivot. Um, I had done some of that over the years already with the Nadas and, and by myself. But during that COVID time, we played, my wife and I traveled and we played, I played, she, she supported me. We played socially distanced uh, private shows is what we, you know, COVID aware, socially distanced private shows. That's all I did for the, that 100,000 miles in 46 states. Um, and I loved it. I loved it so much. And I did all these pop-up shows in the middle of the desert and on the beach and down in Mexico and, uh, you know, someone's front porch on a ranch in Montana and just all over, you name it, I played there. And I loved that. So I want to do more of that. So even though the world's sort of gotten back to normal, I still am looking for that all the time. But in this case, on this Florida trip, it was a van festival that that's kind of the community I've become a part of or built around me now. Um, a, a camper van festival that was my anchor date. So that was what was bringing me down there. And then when I, I knew that date on the calendar, I just threw it out there to people that I knew were in the area and said that I wanted to play some more shows. And so I played uh, in Georgia and it was a, a, a small group of people at a brewery that this guy booked the brewery for me to play. And then, and then, uh, shook down all of his friends to pay me some money to be on the road. And then in, in Jacksonville, Florida, I did play a music venue ticketed show with a couple of other local artists. And then in uh, Daytona beach, I played a Margaritaville retirement community in someone's driveway. And there were about 50 or 60 golf carts all pulled up with people sitting on them, listening to my show. And then, uh, then I played the van festival in, near Melbourne beach and then I played uh, a poolside show at a at a like a RV park in Naples, and then I drove home. Well, Jason, how how does the, how does the mon how does how do you monetize this? Do people come to the with their in their golf carts expecting that they're going to pay ten bucks, five bucks, twenty do. bucks? Yeah. So that is the only I think, in my opinion, and everything, every one of these is a little bit different. But in my opinion, that is kind of the one responsibility of the host is to invite people to come and set the expectations for what the experience will be, which in my case is a, a person telling stories and playing music um, and entertaining. And then the other expectation would be that that I'm going to pass a hat around. And during the COVID time, I, I kind of set a price for myself that was more than I had, than I used to get to play all the neighborhood bars around here. But I thought this is what my day's worth, I think. And also I think I provide this much value to a audience. Mm -hmm. And I set that price. And during that time, people paid it probably mostly because there were no other options and everybody was desperate for uh, mm -hmm. contact and, and, entertainment with people. So, so that was great. That kind of set the price. I will, I'll say these days, it's kind of, I don't get that as often when I ask for it. And a lot of times it, uh, people are even afraid to ask me to play because of that price. But when, when those expectations of inviting people to come listen with the idea that they're going to put some money in a hat, generally people are really generous and it's been almost the same ultimately anyway. So as long as I'm willing to kind of like roll the dice and take a risk, um, it all kind of turns out the same way. And so I'm kind of leaning into doing that more. I'll go play anywhere and just pass a hat around. It's different than busking or doing it on a street corner 
because it's a focused audience that knows a little bit about me. That's, that's set up for success, you know? Um, but it, also it's very little difference from busking. <laughs> <laughs> now, do they, um, do you have CDs you sell or? I do. Yep. I have a, I have a, I, I have right here for show and tell purposes, but I have a, yep. a record called Overlander, which is my, solo original music that I recorded at fame studios and muscle shoals. And then I have a, a record called live octopus, which is just me performing. It's a live show at the octopus and Cedar Cedar falls. Um, and then I travel around with all the Nada's records too. And, and a lot of the songs I play at those shows are Nada's songs and a few covers and a few, a few covers that I have interesting stories for, even though I didn't write them, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I have these on vinyl too. And really they're just sort of like reminders to people that the music's out there because most people listen to music on Amazon or Google or Apple music. And so these are sort of just like business cards these days, but a lot of times people buy them anyway, because they know that's what makes my world go around, you know? Right. Right. So what's the ideal schedule for you? Are you mostly, do you prefer being, in a geographic area so you don't have to do the long drive or do you prefer the long drives? Man, uh, if I was real smart and business savvy, I would say yes, you know, within a certain radius of home, but I love the adventure of it. It's what keeps me going. And so it's definitely harder for me to go to the, to the four corners of our country and I have to plan more time around it and I have to be a little more careful. So for the most part, I'm in the Midwest. Um, but it, I like to go where there's people that want to hear me, you know, so I'll, I'll go anywhere because I love the adventure and, and I can't think of a place you could say uh, where I wouldn't be able to build other shows around it and find fans. I, I kind of know where the pockets of Iowans are, <laughs> um, the expats and, uh, and I even, even around the world, I know that, you know, so I like to just find excuses to go to those places. There must be Iowa groups everywhere. There's there's one down here. I wish I'd known. Uh, well, maybe next year we'll get you to the Iowa group down in Burnt Storm Arena, but they, they must be everywhere. Okay. All right. Let's see. Susan Beckman is on the call. She and her husband, Dave, have a fabulous house in Bur Burlington right on the river. I think it's a prime location for a house co concert. So, geez. Oh, you're giving them a hard sell, Julie. I know. I know. <laughs> I, oh, but she'd love it. She'd love it. So what does she need to do to, Susan, I'm putting you on the spot here, but I bet she'd love this. Do, do, do you pick a date? Do you, do, there she is. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Don't I you think, think it'd be great, Susan, to have a house concert there in Burlington? Oh, you're, you're muted. Sorry. Yeah. She's still figuring it out there. I know she'll get it. Anyway, it's this gorgeous house right overlooking the Mississippi River. It would be okay. interesting. There she is. Hi. Okay. We have hosted musicians for winter parties because people, we like to get people together like through the holidays and stuff. So we, and we have a piano in the living room. So we have had not exactly concerts. They're more open. We pay an artist to come and play, but yeah, we have talked about discussed with our neighbors now because with the shared yard in the view of the river, we've discussed having um, musicians out there and having the neighborhood get together. So yeah. That so I'm interested to hear what, what you say. As I was waiting for you, you to unmute, that is what I was suspecting you would say is I, I would imagine if we took a, had a show of hands that everyone probably has either been to or invited to a house concert or hosted. There's probably some hosts here on this, on your call too. So it, it is more and more common, I think. And I, I think as, you know, as you talked about how things change and the barrier to entry is lowered for people to make music and put music out there. And, and the digital thing has allowed more and more people to discover more people, but we're also all more reachable and, you know, we're all available on social media. And so people can just reach out and say, Hey, I want to hear you. I'd love to ha host a concert. And so that happens more and more. And then whenever I go somewhere, um, I'm always thinking who in that area would want to host. And then I, I just reach out directly. I don't know if that's bad manners or not because people can always say, Oh no, we'd rather not have people at our home or, but I, I also, I put my money where my mouth is. I have, I have people come play my home too. And so um, I just think 
I really truly believe that when you put a group of people focusing their attention and you have a person that, you know, that can perform and, and has interesting songs that real magic, it's like the closest to real magic, real yeah. magic happens for me. And I've experienced it so, so much that, um, I just want to, I, I just want to replicate it as much as I can. And for a while I thought, Oh, that was magic. There's no way that magic could happen again, but it just happens over and over again. Not to the point where I can say, well, if I just do this stuff, I can make magic. I'm not a magician, but I just trust that it happens and it really does. So. So one of the people on the call is uh, Carol Montag and Marjorie, I'm going to go to you after I, I bring Carol in here because I've had Carol do house concerts uh, three or four times now, I think. And uh, they've all been so fun. But Carol, tell me, tell us about your experience of house concerts and or if you have any other comments or questions of Jason. But you'll need to unmute. Carol Montag. Can you hear me? Yep. Uh, well, of the house concerts that I've done or that I've attended, um, a lot of times people they come by invitation. I don't think it's just generally open to the public. I think the host actually invites the people, but many times they have, they have a meal. They will, everybody will bring something. And then prior to the concert, you just sit down, you, you have a meal and the, the musician is there. And um, after the meal, then, then there's a concert in some room of the house somewhere. Um, and generally, it's been just a donation that people will give. And what I've found is that they're very generous. You know, I've earned quite a bit of money at a house concert, and all they do is they'll, they'll just set a basket out, and then, you know, people are free to donate whatever they want. But I really like the intimacy of it. I like the fact that you don't have to drag your sound system and set it up because usually it's in such close proximity that it's really not necessary. Although I, at one of yours, Julie, I did, <laughs> I did rent something. Yeah. So it was in Florida. <laughs> I prefer that too, Carol, where there's no microphone. I feel like the microphone kind of becomes a, a barrier between and, and if you can be in a setting that's quiet enough and intimate enough to, to not have that, you know, that's what the guitar was designed for, was to match your voice and, and perform for people. So I, I love that, too, uh, to do that without PA. Yeah. And the meal thing, like you said, I think to, to be able to, like, really kind of have some interaction with the guests before the show creates that connection that is part of the magic, you know, because... I've learned a little bit about these people and I know that this one song I'm going to play is going to reach that person. And I can kind of not, you know, not look at them or point at them, but I can kind of just focus that attention on that person and it, and it happens, you know, I feel it, it comes back to me. So I really like it. Marjorie, you have a question or a comment, I'll bet. I do. Um, I have recently, as in the last few years, discovered the, listening rooms and the house concerts and you know it's it's really fantastic i just love it and um plus i have a stack of nadas and and <laughs> your your uh, cd right behind me over here but anyway uh jason can you um talk about um the cruise that oh. you, you can you um some of the people might be interested in hearing about that. Yeah, we do these, these thing, these cruises that we, they're called fan club cruises and we do them roughly once a year. Um, the last couple, there's been a, it's been a year in between because they've been bigger. And so we need more time to kind of get people excited about it, but they're, they're, um, avert, they're sort of a version of that where you like put people in a more intimate setting, you put them, you, you put them together where they interact. And then, it, and then when you have a performance, it creates this camaraderie. That's, that's not typical for just going to a venue, 
you know, one time. So, but yeah, we've, we've done these cruises for many years. Um, and they're just, we are, uh, we're a part of a bigger cruise ship, but we have a small group of fans on the ship with us. And so then we have planned activities, including a few shows. And we also have a question and answer session, which is a whole, it's, it's, you know, a, it's in a venue and we have microphones and people just ask questions and we just tell stories, which is, ends up being really fun too. Our one that's coming up in June, the end of June is kind of the most exotic one we've done to date. So it starts in Barcelona and it goes through the Italian Riviera and then back to Barcelona. So it's a week long cruise. It's on a, a Royal Caribbean ship and uh, we play three shows and we do, we have dinner with our group every night. And right now there's about a hundred people. So it's still sort of an intimate group where we end up bumping into people all over the ship every day and having lunch together. And then we have a, an organized dinner together every night. And uh, it's, it's very fun. Our families come, um, longtime fans come, sometimes brand new people come and then they become longtime fans. And uh, it's kind of like a, a floating summer camp. Are you, are you going March? Look something. No, no, I, I'm not. I, I really, uh, I'm just going to Cuba next week, and uh, I'm going to New Zealand later, and I can't fit it all in. Wow. Can't fit it in your busy your busy travel schedule. We did Cuba as a fan club cruise um, really? in 2018, and it was amazing. And we we booked a show in Havana in this art gallery outside with with plants and rocks everywhere. And we're joined by a Cuban band and they played a set and then we played a set and then we all played together. And it was more of that magic I'm talking about. Okay. That's good. So how, does, how did something like the trip to Cuba come about, but also how does a musician get involved in a, in a cruise line gig? Well, it's definitely, it's not a cruise line gig because it's not booked through the, it's not, the cruise is not hiring us or anything like that. This is a fan club cruise. And so there's a website, fan, fanclubcruises.com. And it is, that's a, it's like a travel agent, but that sets up these fan cruises. And so they have a lot of artists, a lot of different itineraries, and we just work with them every year to pick where we want to go and then uh, try to get our fans to sign up for it. Do you have to pay your way to Barcelona? We do, yes. But our our hope always is that we sell enough cabins that we get our all of our travel covered. That's the idea. Okay. Do you usually? Yeah, yeah, usually. And sometimes it ends up being, you know, it all depends on how many people sign up, but um, and how many people we bring on the cruise, um, but. We, we earn a certain amount per cabin sold and that all gets applied to our travel until we've paid for that part. And then we earn whatever is above that. So right now we're at about a break even, I think if I don't take my kids, but I'm hoping to take my kids. Oh, that's <laughs> and by kids, one of them is 20, you know, so they're not very, they're not kids anymore, but I, I'm hoping to have, plus my younger son speaks Italian. So I want him along as a translator. Really? Oh, how cool is that? All right, Chuck, what's your question? You always got a good question. You might be Hey, Jason, uh, good to see you. I've been listening to the Nottas. I think I've been listening to the Nottas since the beginning, actually. But that takes me back. How did, did you, what, at what point did you start performing? I mean, and, and when did music first grip you? I mean, the, when you picked up a guitar and started playing or something, but then also how did you per, uh, pursue that in high school and college years? Yeah, I think in elementary school we did the sound of music and I was uh I was in that and always in the in the school choirs and then church choirs. So that's where the music got a hold of me. And then I didn't pick up guitar until I went to college and I thought it would be a good accessory, you know, to to take to college and it turned out it was. And it became this thing where it was my escape from whatever the stresses of college were. And this all happened really fast, I think. But when I started college, I did not play guitar. And then, you know, loneliness and stress and stuff makes you, makes you just sit and focus on it for a little while. And then it became easier to write songs than learn songs, I thought, at the time. And I just never looked back. When you mentioned going into the studio, I think you said at Fort Dodge, and did you record your first 
album there. Yeah, yeah the um, first one we recorded at like a real makeshift studio above a plumbing supply store, but the second and third one we recorded in Otho <laughs> at uh, Junior's Motel. Have you heard of that place? Yes, I have. I remember. Is that still a thing? It is, yeah. Yep. Well, it, which leads me to my question. How many of those, what do you call them, independent recording studios, how many of those are there around Iowa? You know, these days, less and less. There's, um, But there still are some. There's, pro- I bet there's a, a dozen, maybe, um, that try to make a commercial go at it. But just as technology, the barrier to entry to technology has gotten lower and lower. I mean, we really could record a record on this phone in the next hour and have it on the internet in five minutes, you know? Um, and that junior's motel, even though it's in a chicken coop in Otho, Iowa was a million dollar studio in like 1980, you know, wow. because they, they had a record deal and the record they put they took all their record deal money and put it into this chicken coop on the family farm and, and made this world-class studio out of it. So the thing is you just, there's still a, there's still a benefit to recording in a place like that but there's not the payoff at the end ever, you know? So, uh, so it's harder to, to justify going into a studio like that anymore. We, we kind of still do because we're just used to that setting and, and it's conducive to product to producing great work. But like my son who's 20 and he's recording music, he's doing it in his apartment, you know, with his friends. So I wondered as you described that, if that's where this is headed, I mean, you really could do a recording and it'd be totally online. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You could do it. You market and promote it that way, right? Oh, yeah. It it makes, it actually makes, you're making me want to say two things and I got to try to remember them both, but it makes making these things make zero sense anymore. Because if you took a room of, of 10 people and said, how many people have a CD player? It might be one these days. And so when I, when I released these, I bought um, bulk portable CD players. And I said, whenever, if you buy a CD, you get a free CD player. And I lost <laughs> you know, like $12 on every, per, on every sale, but I'm not a businessman. I'm a guy who's trying to get it out there. And so, yeah, it, it makes no sense to make those anymore. Um, and I already lost my other, my other train of thought, but um, it probably wasn't that good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you. Keep them coming. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember we did a, a a public speaking thing together once for the register, a storytelling thing. Do you remember yeah, that? We did. That's right. We were on the same bill that night. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I'm trying to get more into is just sort of like public speaking and and you know talks for corporate America. Just because uh, it, I think it would fit nicely with me going out and playing music. So it would. Yeah. I'd yeah. encourage you to do that. You're, you're, you're as good a storyteller as you are a musician, too. So that's a nice combination. Andy's Thank a you. writer. Andy's a photographer. And yes, we're having a conversation about Substack. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that you and I talked about, Jason, leading up to this call was the future of how musicians get paid. And you said something that has stuck with me. And that is as as grant money goes away, blah, 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 that there need to there needs to be more of an awareness that, of the need for patrons of the arts. And tell me more about that, the relationship you had with the camping, uh, the van company, um, sure. those sorts of creative things you've figured out to, to keep going. Okay. I remembered the other thing I was going to say, and it's, it's kind of related to that too. So I feel like I need to get it out. And I don't, I don't know how to do the actual research as to far as how many records, but when we put, we made our first record and released it in 95. And it'd be really interesting to know how many CDs were released in 1995, but I have yet to find that. But even if I, even if we just pretended that, uh, if we just made a stab at it, I would imagine that it would be like 10, 20, maybe 30,000, and that would be a lot. Um, Even if we pretended it was 100,000 that were released in 1995, last year there were 22 million released. So that shows that what happens with that barrier to entry, and there's, there's still only so many ears and so many hours of the day that you can listen. And with, with uh, how, how much, you know, how comfortable couches have gotten and how, much content is streaming visually now. 
I feel like there's less people listening. And so that's, that's one thing that's changed. Not even, not even just the metrics as far as how much you get paid per stream. It's just, there's so much out there now. So um, one thing that has gotten harder and and I don't ever want that to come off as though I'm complaining. It's just, I've chosen this, this uh, career and you have to evolve. Right. So, but what happened with us, with the, with the, the COVID pivot playing backyard shows and, and traveling in a self-contained vehicle is that the, the camper van company saw what we were doing and liked how, you know, our story and what we were doing with, with their product and the community that was kind of building around us because we were out there playing music. And they started giving us tour support, which is an old major label sort of terminology for, you know, funding you to be on the road to sell their records. You know, that's what major labels used to do. And that doesn't really exist anymore either. Um, but this company decided that they wanted to give us tour support. And that just, that just helped us pay for our gas, pay for our travel. It, it helped us not really think about the bottom line as far as whether I was going to take a gig or not. So that's when I started the I'll Play Anywhere Man Tour and just started driving around, playing people's backyards with the support of this camper van company. And and you could really you could really tell that the community that was building up around us became their customers. And so it was like a win-win for this, you know, multi-million dollar company to just give a little bit of cash to these artists that were out on the road, you know. And it's sort of an example of what used to happen, you know, back during like the Renaissance period of art where where there was this patronage thing that came from the people with wealth or the church really. And I just wonder if the modern version of that, it seems like all the money these days goes into the coffers of corporate America, right? And in many, in many cases, it seems like they have more than they can spend. And, and if there was this like effort for corporate America to support the making of art, um, I feel like it could solve some of those problems, but I'm not in a position to say I could solve the problem of how, how do we pay for it and how do we generate new art? I just feel like there is a solution in there, you know, and the camper van company, the case study that happened for us for three years um, kept me doing what I was doing and opened up all kinds of possibilities for me. And, and it opened my eyes to other oppor opportunities. And I, I probably would not have made this solo record if that had not happened. I'm so excited about you. And I see D'Artagnan on the call and, and Carol Montag on the call all coming to the Okoboji Songwriters Retreat, which is the first time we've we've kind of dedicated a whole track to to uh, a new new kind new form of storytelling. It seems to me that there's a I don't know how many of us you know when we were teenagers had a guitar and a dream uh, that never was realized. But I'll bet you there are a whole bunch of folks out there who who just want to sit with somebody like you and and learn how to write a song. Do you think do you think people will come away from a workshop like that knowing how to write a song or is that too Oh yeah. Really? I, I feel like I feel like Carol you can correct me if if you disagree but I feel like we could teach people to write a song in how long's a song? 3 and a half minutes, probably in a matter of of 10 minutes. Whether or not that song is satisfying to that person or an audience is a that's something that comes with time, but the idea of just writing a song, it's it's the same as teaching someone to write a an email, <laughs> you know. It's um, uh, it's just as far as channeling that that creativity and then putting it in a executable form, I guess. Um, luckily, you know, people like the Beatles taught us how to write a song that people would like a long time ago. And you just sort of follow those formats of the people you like and what moves you. Um, I, I think that it's as, as simple as that. And, and hopefully you have something to say. And hopefully, you know, a lot of people are like, well, I just don't have a good voice. I, I kind of feel like everybody has a voice and there's somebody that'll listen to, to everybody. And if you don't have, if you don't have a, pitch or you're tone deaf or something well there's plenty of people who who don't sing with a melody you know like i just feel like it is it really is it's a it, i think that the a songwriting workshop is mostly about teaching people they already have it in them so 
D'Artagnan's on the call too, and I'd like to bring you in, D'Artagnan. I've seen you smile and laugh and and nod your head as we're having this conversation. Do you have oh, any really? questions? Question? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just kidding. Jason, uh, really, brother, I very, very, very much appreciate your breadth of experience, the range of things that you are attempting to do, the way you actually are able to make it happen uh, artistically and on a business plane too. Very, very, very neat. Thank um, you. Yeah, seriously. I was gone, you know, about the time you started playing when the Nottas were uh, at their, you guys started in the 80s? We started in the early 90s. It, yes. Yeah. Okay. I was, that's when I was in California. So I kind of missed that, the beginning of that wave. But um, very, uh, you know, I have to go back. Chuck, you kind of stole my first, my first question. When, uh, when you first started playing, uh, you were, you said you did like church choir stuff. Mm -hmm. and grade school uh, and junior high and high school yeah yeah cool because you know at the very beginning you talked about the you know the intimacy of the experience you and your you know just you and the audience mm -hmm. and you and yourself really in a large measure and being able to maintain that over these years it sounds like you've really done a good thing for yourself to be able to maintain that kind of early relationship with why we even love to play music in the first place. Really yeah, I, I kind of had to come back to it a little bit, though, D'Artagnan. I think like, you know, when you're when we were younger or maybe even 10 years ago, it just seemed like we were working towards how big of a crowd can we get in front of? Because that's where the money is. You know, the bigger the crowd, you have the efficiency of scale. Costs are about the same, but the but you so we were working and also that's what success is, right? Is being in front of the larger audience and the more people you can reach, the more successful you are. But I've come back around now to the fact that that, that intimate connection and that magic that happens on a almost one-on-one -on -one basis um, is really the fuel for me, you know? And so, and I have less of an expectation of, of playing the Super Bowl someday and more, more of an expectation of just, kind of feeding myself and, and, and having and having some sort of a off ramp in my later days. That's my goal, you know? And I right. think the more, the more intimate experiences we can have with people, the more, the more that that's where the special things happen. And so I just want more of that. Exactly. Um, the, um, my father played, in Iowa, 1949 till about 61 or two. And in the jazz based world, even though they're also doing blues and lots and comedy and, you know, they're more kind of all around experience. And remembering where that all comes from, right? that, that intimacy. Um, chasing the big numbers, chasing the big audience got changed when digital came in, because as you just said, this whole, uh, how are you handling that as far as the um, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube matrix? Yeah. Are you, are you well, involved in that? I mean, you have to be there. You have to be on there. You have to go where people listen, you know, so we're on there. We just don't rely on it for for really any significant income, you know, yeah. and you know, people talk about like Taylor Swift, she still makes millions of dollars from streaming, but she probably would have made 10 times that without the streaming, you know? Um, and so for every, and you know, one thing that's changed is we, we used to put out a record and I was always very proud that there was depth to our records and there were many songs on there that people liked, but um, you know, you used to put out a record and hope that you had a song that people would, would listen to and then if you did people would buy that record for that song and they would pay you ten dollars one time to hear that song and they might share it with their friend and then their friend would buy the record so they could hear that song but now it's uh you know for the for the same people to listen to a whole record there's just it's just free everywhere all the time you know That's right and and millions of them are and so you just can't expect people to dedicate that much focus and time 
to your your one record anymore. So it's just a fleeting moment that just keeps you going, you know? Yes, but we keep doing it because uh, the kind of the medicinal, the meditative, the healthy, the life-giving aspects of the music. So even though this 0.001 cents per play thing would drive most of us nuts, uh, I'm still doing it because you get a chance to make that connection. And yep. God, yep. this year, uh, one last thing for you. Um, I got a chance, speaking of songwriting subjects, uh, I was sustained by able to, being able to write about a real subject this year, Buxton, Iowa, the, the story of a mining town. But my grandmother was um, a mem- was born into that town. And so I had an opportunity to, through a puppet show, to write songs about that. Wow. And yeah, yeah, it's really a great way to kind of, again, stay connected, uh, use history, but also think outside of the box a little bit. So, so I'm, really your- looking, I'm really looking forward to when you guys all sit, sit t- together at the campfire in Okaboji and start sharing these ideas and and uh, with not only fellow musicians, but also fellow participants, because I think I think magic will happen. I don't know exactly how or or why, but I, I'm I'm excited about getting the poets and the screenwriters and the film writers and the authors and I I just think the connections that are going to be made have a real potential for for uh, growing something something cool. So before I let you go, Jason, tell us about the Templeton Rise song, and if you can. Uh, end our conversation today with your own song that would be terrific. Sure, yeah. So I, I think probably at this point many of us know the story of Templeton Rye, the the old story. My song is about the the Prohibition era whiskey, not the stuff you can buy at Hy-Vee or Come and Go nowadays. But um, it used to be back when we we would play in Western Iowa, Carroll County, and the surrounding ca- counties. Someone would always have a sample of of it. Sometimes they didn't even call it Templeton Rye. They called it farm whiskey or bootleg or whatever. But I, 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 I came to understand that it, was, that it was this Templeton Rye. And sometimes people would say that's what it was. And so I started collecting the stories um, to the point of obsession, really. And I, I, went, I went to the historical building and went through the archives. And I went through all these little small town city halls. I went through their arrest records. I went through the, the basement of the Coon Rapids newspaper and looked at all their bound uh, newspaper archives. I went to the, the Carroll County, Doug Burns let me in the basement of there. And I looked up all the, the old newspaper clippings about, about prohibition. And uh, eventually everyone was very tight lipped up there about the old stories. It was almost something they were ashamed of a little bit. Um, and so eventually someone said, you know, my great aunt is still alive in this nursing home and she loves to tell stories about it. And so I went and talked to her and then she told me about someone down the hall. And then he told me about someone across town at another nursing home. And, and I spent a couple of years listening to these stories and collecting them. And so the song, so I hope we have time. The song is four hours long and, uh, no, but this is my Templeton Rise song and it, and it comes from uh, from talking to all these people. It's very general, but every every line in the song, I can almost picture who told me about it and what I'm referring to, even though I keep it pretty high level. But this is my Templeton Rice song. Thanks for asking, Julie. Born in a cloud of dust, it broke the best of us. Sweating poverty, it was a desperate time. And they took our drink away. How are we supposed to live that way? Nothing takes away the pain like Templeton Rye. So let the barn burn. Let the band play. Everything will be okay. Because when your mouth gets dry, fill my cup with Templeton Rye. Bag of sugar and a bushel of grain. Everyone is praying for rain. Revenue is poured down the drain. So we start from scratch. 30 feet of a copper pipe. 100 gallons cooking overnight. Make sure it tastes just right. Start another batch. 
So let the barn burn. Let the lovers dance. Stay fair romance. Cause when your mouth gets dry, fill my cup of Templeton rye. Now we make it on our own. In the basement of our home, we sell a little bit to Al Capone. The guy's got a mean thirst. We take the rest to the river house farm. Out in back of the heater farm. A pretty girl walking on my own, guided by the moonlight. So let the barn burn. Let the band play. Everything will be okay. Cause when your mouth gets dry, fill my cup. Templeton Rye, fill my cup. With Templeton Rye. When your mouth gets dry, fill my cup. Templeton Rye. Uh, Jason, thank you so much. And those on the call, I put a link to his website. And when I upload the podcast, I'll include it there too. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I appreciate it. Thank you, Julie, for having me. Absolutely. And Chuck says we're all going to Susan Beckman's house in Burlington for the house concert. Great. Let me know the date. I'll be there. Okay. Bye-bye.